1909 of the Black Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of these Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. I'd like you to open your Bibles or keep them open if you were following along. Beth's reading, Matthew 5. This is where we're at this morning. We're starting a, a new series and, uh, with a rather clever title, if I may say so myself. <laughs> Hashtag blessed. If you are not a clever millennial, this means nothing to you. So let me explain. Hashtag is something that some people use on social media, like Twitter and Instagram and many other sites I am utterly unfamiliar with that my children tell me are great and necessary for life. (laughs) Hashtags are something that people use when they want to give a topic to their message. So they would post a thought, uh, however worthy or unworthy it may be, but it's out there and now you have to identify it. You have to put an additional name to it, an additional topic, to connect it with maybe a greater conversation that is happening online. So for example, you might find tweets like this one, date night with my hubby, hashtag love, hashtag no kids, hashtag freedom, hashtag don't want to go home, and so on. (laughs) Or maybe you post a picture with your sister, and the hashtag would be then best sisters or it could be a tweet like this playoff hockey is the best hashtag go blues something like that well you get the point that's that's what people do online and there's a hashtag blessed that you will see i'm not making it up it's real if you go on twitter and you would simply click on hashtag blessed you will find that there are many many tweets that people post about this topic Now, blessed is a religious word, and it's been used to identify certain events in life or 
conditions or circumstances that people consider to be a favor from God, something that is good in their lives, something that is happening that they can say, oh, this is a good thing, I am blessed. And so people would say, hashtag blessed. So for example, if, even if you go, I'm not encouraging you to go on Twitter right now, but if you were to do that, probably one of my children tweeting it out, getting promoted at work, hashtag blessed. So those kind of things you will see online, and, and this gives us a pretty good idea of what we think that being blessed means, right? We largely connect blessedness with material possessions and human accomplishments. Of course, since God is the source of all blessing, these can all be called blessings. If Pastor Josh brings donuts to Sunday school, it is a blessing. It's okay to say so. It's okay to enjoy it. I'm sorry, I think I was supposed to dismiss the children. Children are gone. It's a busy Sunday, I'm sorry. Um, and so, so when you think about different things happening in your life, uh, those are good things to acknowledge as gifts from God. But is it the same as being in the state of blessing, as having God's favor? Will any of those things or all of those things make us think that God loves us, that God accepts us, that God has a special favor on us? Are these things like cars and educational opportunities and career advancements, is that what makes us blessed by God? Now I'm asking that question because that is what we're going to be dealing with for the next eight weeks as we look at a particular passage of Scripture. The question is, what does God think of our blessing? And what do we think of being blessed by God? Are those the same things? Is there a difference? If Jesus were to use the hashtag blessed, right? What would he put next to it? That's the question. And and it sounds, some of you are saying, well, Jesus don't tweet, so that's that's not appropriate. But there is a passage of scripture where if Jesus did tweet, you can take those exact passages and just put it on Twitter. You don't have to change them. They're all short. They all have, have the same heading of being blessed. And they all clearly communicate to us from Jesus' perspective what it means to be blessed. What does he think it means for us to experience the blessing of God? Now I'm talking about the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, the passage that Beth read for us. And let me set it in context really quickly before we get to our first one, which is our topic for today. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, those chapters of Matthew, contain what we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. Those are teachings of Jesus given to his disciples, which is important, but also heard by many other people surrounding that area in the crowd. Sermon on the Mount is a description of the life in the kingdom of God, or the Christian life. It's a description of what it means to live as a Christian. Most of the Sermon on the Mount is concerned with the conduct of the Christian. So what do you do? How do you live? But it begins with the character of the Christian, summarized in the Beatitudes. Beatitudes, it just simply means blessed or happy. 
And so these are those eight sayings, eight portions that describe to us what it means to be blessed by God from Jesus' perspective. So now we set up the series, we provided some context to our passage. Let's look at the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is saying. To be blessed is to be poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. In other words, we can claim God's favor, hashtag blessed, if we discover ourselves to be poor in spirit. I'd like us to focus on this one verse as we would focus every week. We'll look at each beatitude in turn. And I'd like us to ask three questions this morning to help us understand it. Number one, what is a poor and one blessing? So what do I mean? Okay, let's process it together. When you think about this very important beginning of a sermon that describes the Christian life, and the blessed life, in many ways we can say, that the happy life of a Christian. Jesus does not start with pointing to something that we have. In fact, he starts by pointing to something we lack. The beginning is, not you blessed because you have this, but you are blessed because you lack everything. You're poor, poor in spirit. So Jesus begins by pointing to our deficiency, as, as a, 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 a necessary condition to receive a blessing from God. To be poor in spirit means not to have the necessary spiritual resources. Poverty of spirit means spiritual emptiness, spiritual bankruptcy. Poverty of spirit means inability to sustain yourself spiritually. Who are the poor in spirit? Augustine helps us. He answers, the humble who confess their sins, who do not pride themselves on their merits or their righteousness. Who are the poor in spirit? Those who praise God when they do right, but hold themselves to blame when they do wrong. There's a great illustration in the Gospels of what it means to be poor in spirit. It it would help you if you turn with me to Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Jesus tells the story. The same person who gave us the Beatitudes is now illustrating one of them by giving us the story. Luke 18, 10. Jesus says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, even the made righteous, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the difference. There's the humble and the exalted. The humble receives the blessing. The exalted misses out 
on the blessing. The Pharisee was rich in spirit. He put his practices. He could favorably compare himself with many other people and show himself to be better than others. So he brings all of that to God in prayer. He's saying, this is my wealth. These are my riches I can offer to God to be accepted on the basis of these things. Rich in spirit. He has many things to commend himself before God. Now the tax collector is the opposite. He is poor in spirit. He has nothing to commend himself before God. Nothing to offer to God. He doesn't even dare to look up to heaven. He stands far off. He doesn't come to where people usually pray. He would prefer to be on the fringes. He would prefer not to look directly in the heavens as most people did when they prayed. Tax collector came as a sinner desperate for God's mercy. In fact, that was his prayer. God have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee prays, look at me. That's his prayer. Look at me, God. Look what I have to offer to you. The tax collector is very different. He says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Overlook that I am a sinner and give mercy to me. He doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He knows he has nothing to commend himself before God. Now, our response to this story, as you read this, if you just read it for the first time or it's a familiar story, our response largely depends on who we identify with in the story. There are two groups of people who read this story. Some are bothered by it. Others are encouraged by it. Those that are bothered by it are identifying with the Pharisee. And they're saying, how can it be that God would accept a tax collector, but he wouldn't accept this righteous person? The other group of people identifies with the sinner, identifies with the tax collector, and says, how wonderful it is that God would accept someone like me. You see, it depends on where you're coming from. If you're coming from the position of spiritual wealth, if you are rich in spirit, this doesn't make sense. God doesn't seem to be doing what he's supposed to be doing. But if you come in as a person who is poor in spirit, and you come in in need of God's mercy, realizing that the only thing that would communicate God's blessing, God's favor to you is his mercy, is, he, is his looking past your sin, then this is a very encouraging story. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, says that we are always in want of God's grace. We are always begging at God's door, always hanging on in his house. That's such a good description of poverty of spirit. Always begging for God's mercy. Always in need of it. There's never a time when I don't need God's mercy. I'm always hanging on in his house. I'm always just lingering in his presence. I'm always trying to get God's favor because of his mercy. Because maybe in his benevolence, maybe in his grace, he would bless me. That is a description of somebody who is poor in spirit. Now, let me give you another illustration of what it means to, to experience poverty in spirit. This is a, a bit of a strange story, so... I hope to explain how it applies, but let me work through it first. It comes uh, from the collection of sayings by the Desert Fathers. If you're not 
familiar with them. That's 4th century, 4th, 5th century. Mostly Egyptian, some Syrian monks. Those are people that have left the cities and went into the desert and decided to focus on prayer and, and, and scripture and, and live holy lives. Whatever you may think of their approach, that's what they did. And so one of them, the more famous one of them, Macarius, uh, 4th century Egyptian, he went to live alone, but he lived next to a village. And uh, something happened. A young girl got pregnant in the village, and no father, people don't know what's happening. And so they asked the girl, and she said, oh, it's the monk. The monk got me pregnant. So he gets falsely accused that he took advantage of this young girl, and now there's a child. And so people you know, don't think much about these things. They just drag him out of his cell. They bring him into the village. They beat him, humiliate him uh, in, in, in any other way that they could shame him. Now, he doesn't resist, though he is innocent. He doesn't defend himself. He uh, gets better, returns to his cell, and begins to support the young girl who slandered him by making and selling mats and baskets. And that's a probably typical work for a monk of those times. Now, months go by. The girl is given birth. Uh, it's a very difficult delivery. And she realizes that she needs to confess her sin in the midst of delivery. Uh, and so she does that. And she says, the monk is innocent. She names the father, who is a local kid. And, and, and the truth comes out. She gives a birth. And it's a beautiful baby girl. And everything is fine. Except that the village people realize that, that now they have blamed this holy person for months, beat him, humiliated him, and it was all wrong. It was all slander. So they get together. They, of course, regret it deeply, and, and they, they're going to go and they bring gifts. They're going to go to the monk, and they're going to ask for his forgiveness. They're going to beg him to forgive them because they know that it matters in those things, and maybe there's, there's a curse that's coming to them because they have treated someone holy like that so badly. So they go to him, and as they're walking towards him, away from the village, his friend runs ahead and, and warns him, and he says, Listen, great news. They figured it out. They know you're not the Father. They're coming to beg for your forgiveness. They're bringing gifts. They're going to praise how holy you are. Macarius, at this point, says, I need to leave before they get here, lest they should do me harm. He doesn't want their praise. And in fact, he does leave, avoids this whole ceremony altogether, and, and he does it for a very good reason. Now, this is a strange story from another time, but I want you to see what's important to him, what he thinks is important, what he thinks is dangerous, which is absolutely countercultural to many Christians today and in, really in all times. What's important to this monk is not the praise of other people. His reputation is not that important. He was willing to accept a false accusation, not defend himself, not argue against him. He did not think it was important to have a good reputation among the people. In his mind, he was a sinner. And whatever they did to him was deserved. So they beat him, and maybe they beat him for a different sin that he didn't commit, but he committed enough sin that it was justified. He was okay with that. And if he had to help someone in need, that was okay too. What he was really careful with, what he thought was really dangerous, he thought great spiritual harm 
would have resulted from his acceptance of the villagers' praise? What if he started to believe in his own holiness as they did? What if he agreed with them that he was righteous? Well, in his mind, that is a much bigger deal than getting beat up by some people. In his mind, that, that goes to the very center of who he is. He's cultivating this poverty of spirit, coming to God as a beggar, asking for grace and mercy. What if he accepted that praise? What if he believed them? What if he started to think of himself as righteous? That jeopardizes this whole relationship with God that he has. Now, this is poverty of spirit. You may not agree how he applied it, but in his heart, he is focused on the right thing. He knows that everything depends on his humility. Everything depends on his faith. Everything depends on God accepting him based on God's own mercy and grace. He knew he had no righteousness in himself, and he was not going to let people convince him otherwise. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, is come to God empty. Nothing to offer to him, nothing to commend yourself before God. You're coming as a beggar, relying completely, totally on his grace. Now, why is it a blessing? How does this poverty of spirit make us blessed? How does it gain us God's favor? Now, please notice, this is the first beatitude. This is where Jesus starts. And in many ways, it's a foundational concept. Poverty of spirit or humility is a necessary thing if we are to establish a relationship with God and experience His blessing. Let me make even a bigger statement. Christianity cannot be understood or practiced without humility. This first beatitude and the fact that it is first destroys our ambition to manufacture Christian character traits and to live the Christian life in our own power. Now, if you come into this passage of Scripture and you're saying, this is how I become a Christian. I need to be, I need to mourn over my sins. I need to hunger for righteousness. I need to be merciful. I need to be a peacemaker. You can sort of try to do those things, but if you start with the poverty of spirit, you're saying, I can't even begin by myself. Something has to happen to me. Something has to be taken away so I could be a Christian. So the Beatitudes is not a way to become a Christian. It's a description of what a Christian is like. And for us to be a Christian, to be in a relationship with God, to be accepted with Him, to be forgiven by Him, we must be poor in spirit. Jesus begins with the necessity of poverty of spirit because without it, no one can experience God's favor. We cannot be accepted by God have a relationship with Him unless we are poor in spirit. Now look at the rest of our verse. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a life in a relationship with Him, life under His rule, life of purpose and confidence and joy and freedom. And the blessing here is that this kind of life, this blessed life, this life in God's favor, 
belongs to those who are poor in spirit. This is the blessing. We can know that we are blessed if we are poor in spirit because this is how the kingdom of God becomes a reality in our lives. We can know that we are blessed by God if we are poor in spirit because this is how the kingdom of God becomes a reality in our lives. Remember when Jesus talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Who went home justified? Or having the favor of God, or being blessed, or or being accepted and forgiven by God. It wasn't the rich in spirit Pharisee. It was the poor in spirit tax collector. His is the kingdom of heaven. If we are poor in spirit, ours is the kingdom of heaven. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, there's no more perfect statement of the doctrine of justification by faith only than this beatitude. He's saying if we were to, to summarize this doctrine that we're only accepted by God by our faith, which is nothing at all, that it could be summarized in this beatitude in the best way. It's the poverty of spirit that is equated with faith. What is faith? Are you offering to God anything? No. What is faith? You're accepting. You're coming empty to be filled. You're coming begging to receive. That's faith. It's not a work. It's not a quality. It's not something you can manufacture, you can conjure up somehow. It's, it's not something you can develop. It's simply accepting what God has done for you. So our relationship with God, our, our, our feeling of being accepted, our state of being forgiven with Him, His favor, all of those things are a gift. We cannot receive this gift if our hands are full of other stuff. And so we come to God and He says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Why? Well, the kingdom is received. It is my kingdom because it's been given to me. It is your kingdom because it's been given to you. The kingdom of God is not earned or conquered or created. It is received. It's received as a gift. And how can you receive anything unless you come in need of it, unless you come empty, unless you come open? to accept it as a work of God's grace. Now here's an example. In the old days, I don't think... When I say the old days, I don't mean the 80s, like my children. When they say the old days, it's the 80s and 90s. Um, this is, I don't know how far back it goes, but you read books, you watch movies, and when, when there's a storm and, and there's great ship is being tossed around... Right away, inevitably, in any movie, they start throwing things overboard, right? They start <clears throat> throwing all these supplies and cargo, anything they could find to lighten the ship so they can survive the storm. I don't think they do that much anymore. I may be mistaken, but it seems like that's kind of an old thing we used to do at one point. But the illustration works. When you're in the midst of the storm, you lighten the ship so you can survive the storm. So you give everything up. Now, the things they're throwing overboard are good things, by the way. Those are things that they're hoping to get to the next port to make money. Those are things that they're going to need, like food, 
If they survive, they're probably going to need it. And yet to survive, you have to get rid of everything, as much as you can, so that you can weather the storm. Now this is exactly how it works in the spiritual realm. No one survives the storm of sin unless they get rid of everything. No one comes to God unless they come empty, poor, and humble, contrite, desperate for His grace. Matthew Henry again says, This poverty of spirit is a gracious disposition of soul by which we are emptied of self in order to our being filled with Jesus Christ. We are emptied of self in order to our being filled with Jesus Christ. Please listen carefully. The measure of our emptiness of self is directly correlated to the measure of our fullness of God. The measure of our emptiness of self is directly correlated to the measure of our fullness of God. Only the empty hearts are filled with God's grace. You can't fill it if there's something in it. Only the poor in spirit are given the riches of God's kingdom. This is how it works. We come empty to be filled. If you come full, you're not going to be filled with God's grace. So to be blessed, and I mean to be blessed in a rich, deep, biblical sense, is to experience God's favor, to be included in His kingdom, to be fully accepted by Him, to rest in His love. That's the state of being blessed. That's the state of enjoying God's favor. And this is much bigger and much better than getting a new car or graduating from middle school. We're talking about something different. What we often mistake for tokens of God's favor are not that at all. In fact, often they become things we fill ourselves with so we are not empty enough to accept His favor. So as you think about your life and you ask yourself, how do I know I am blessed by God? How do you know? Do you look at your life and you say, well, God gave me this. He must really love me. Or God blessed me with this opportunity. That is blessing. This is how I know that God accepts me and loves me. That is the Twitter answer, right? That's not the biblical answer. The biblical answer is you look at your heart and you're saying, I am empty. I am poor. I am needy. That is how I know the kingdom of God belongs to me. Is it counterintuitive to you? Yes. Is it countercultural? Absolutely. So if you were to tweet it out, you would say, poor in spirit, hashtag blessed. That's, that's the biblical approach. This is what Jesus is telling us. You know that you have God's favor by looking at yourself and asking yourself, am I wealthy or am I poor? Am I empty or am I full? And if you say, I am a beggar at God's door, that's a good thing. That means the kingdom belongs to you. That means you are blessed by God and favored by Him. And whatever your circumstances are, that state of blessedness doesn't change them. 
You see? Yes, rejoice when you get a new car. There's nothing wrong with that. Enjoy it. It's a God's gift. But that is not a token of His acceptance. It's just a gift to you. The greater reality is looking at your heart and saying, Am I broken? Am I empty? Am I a beggar at His gate? And if so, you are blessed by God. You are enjoying His favor and the kingdom belongs to you. Now finally, we must ask our last question, how can we experience it? If we understand what the poverty of spirit is, if we know why it's a blessed thing because it leads us into the kingdom of God, the last question is how can we, how can I, how can you experience the poverty of spirit? How can we receive the kingdom of heaven? How can we cultivate this kind of attitude to life? Well, we can't talk about the kingdom without talking about the king. It's the king that offers us the kingdom. The person who is preaching this, these beatitudes, who is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, is the king who came to establish his kingdom. It is he who teaches us about his kingdom. So if we look at him, if we look at who he is, what he has done, this is how we can see ourselves have the right definition of who we are, discover who we really are before him and enter his kingdom. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, as the creed tells us, the rightful king of all creation, humbled himself and became nothing. It's Philippians 2.7, became nothing. Another translation would put it, he emptied himself. He who was full emptied himself for us. Second Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, Though he was rich, he was rich, ruler of all creation, with all the power, with all the glory, with all the wisdom. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we might become rich by his poverty. That's our king. That's the king who offers us the kingdom. He himself emptied himself. He himself became poor. He himself became broken. He himself became weak. So that through him, by looking to him, we could be rich, welcomed into his kingdom, blessed, enjoying the favor of God. God became human so we could become like him. The innocent suffered. The righteous died for the unrighteous. In the cross of Christ, we see him becoming poor and empty and broken for us. Falsely accused and slandered, unjustly convicted, though not defending himself, brutally murdered so that our sins can be forgiven. So the cosmic guilt of us that fills us could be emptied out so we could be filled anew with his mercy and forgiveness and grace. That is what makes us poor in spirit. That's what makes us inheritors of the kingdom when we look at the king who emptied himself for me. If we stand beside the cross, how can you feel rich in spirit? How can you claim any righteousness? How can you claim any accomplishments? John Stodd, the great English theologian, says... Every time we look at the cross, 
Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing, your curse I am suffering, your debt I am paying, your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. Nothing cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. What is our true size? Empty, beggars at the gate of God. That's who we really are. But for us to get it, for us to stop filling ourselves with our own righteousness, we need to see the cross. We need to come to the cross and stand there and look up and say, if it took Jesus this to save me, what kind of spiritual shape am I really in? That's the question. If nothing else but the death of the Son of God would do to save me, how bad am I really off? Is there anything I can offer to God to commend me to Him? We look at the cross and we realize that we are poor in spirit. And once we realize that, we are welcomed into His kingdom. That's how it works. The cross exposes our spiritual bankruptcy, exposes all of our attempts at righteousness as as futile and weak, and then the cross fills us with the righteousness of Christ. That is how we can get there. This is how we can appropriate salvation. This is how we can be welcomed into the kingdom. Because of the cross, because of the king who emptied himself so we could be filled. In the early 90s, in the olden days, as some say, D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, he teaches at Trinity in, uh, in Illinois, uh, led a, he led a panel discussion with Carl Henry and Kenneth Conser. Now, some of you know those names, some of you don't. Carl Henry is, I don't know, one of the maybe handful of people who whom God used to turn the evangelical movement in the, in, in the course that it is now throughout the 20th century. He's a very influential person. I mean, he edited Christianity Today, was professor, many, many books. Very influential person over the course of very turbulent times. Kenneth Conser was also a very influential person. Uh, he was uh, very involved at Trinity Divinity School and, uh, again, books, all sorts of influence. Now, they were both in their 70s at the time, and Carson, who was at that time was a, a younger professor, he got to interview them and ask all sorts of questions to help the new generation appreciate their influence and their ministry. So he asked both of them how they've been able to, to hold on to the truth of Christianity, the gospel of Christ, in the midst of many battles and controversies, all the liberal controversies that raged throughout the 20th century, 
So many people went a different way, and yet these men stayed the course and, in fact, supported a whole movement around them. So how could they be so faithful to the gospel, and yet at the same time, they didn't become bitter, they didn't become eccentric, they didn't start building their own empires like some of the other evangelical leaders did. In other words, how did they maintain such integrity and influence for such a long time? It just seems unusual. And so Carson asked them, he says, how, what has helped you to achieve this balance? Concer replied, I wish I had achieved it. Good answer, right? He doesn't think he was particularly balanced. Carson says, ah, humility. Concer says, realism. And pauses. Because he knows in his heart, he has not done as well as Carson is saying he's done. You see? Concer goes on to say, we both will have the same answer to that. God. Another good answer. Henry chimes in and he says, Christ died for our sins. Now remember the question, Carson's saying, how have you been able to maintain this balance between fidelity to the gospel, being so clear on the message of Christ, and yet avoiding bitterness and avoiding pride and arrogance? Carl Henry's answer is, Christ died for our sins. That ought to hold anyone in balance, he said. There's no reason for pride in that. And there's no reason for bitterness towards anyone else in that. Concert says, I really have nothing else to add to that. That's a good answer. What are they saying? They're saying, how can we hope to live a life that's pleasing to God? How can we hope to enjoy God's favor in whatever circumstances you've been placed in? And they have been placed in very difficult cultural circumstances. The answer is, Christ died for my sins. How can I be proud? If I remember that, if I look at the cross, if I place myself beside the cross, and this is where I normally am, so I can see my Savior dying for my sins, if that is my reality, how can I be arrogant? There's nothing in me. I am poor. I am a beggar. I am empty. How can I be bitter towards anyone else, they're saying. How can you do that? If all that I have, all the blessing of God, is determined by Christ's death for me, not my effort, not my performance, not how many times a week I fast, or how, many, how much tithe I give to the church, none of that determines it. Christ died for my sins. How can I be proud? So how can we be poor in spirit? We look at the cross and we say, what other options do I have? What other view of myself makes any sense if I'm looking from the perspective of the cross? So my question to all of us, have you looked at the cross and realized again that Jesus died for you? Are you poor in spirit, a beggar, desperate for God's mercy? If so, come to the table of the Lord. This is a place for you. It's no accident that you come to the table not to give but to receive. It's no accident that you come to take something into your body because it's empty and because it needs nourishment. You come to the table because you're thirsty and hungry for righteousness. 
for God's righteousness. This is why all of us believers practice communion. We come to the table to be filled again with His grace, but we come empty every time. There's nothing that we bring to this table. If you are not a follower of Christ, if you're listening to me and you're saying, I don't know if I'm poor in spirit. I don't know if I belong in the kingdom. I don't know if I know this king. I'm asking you not to come to the table, but I'm asking you to come to Jesus. I'm asking you to consider the king who emptied himself for you so he could fill you, so he could bless you, so you too can enjoy God's favor forever based on what Jesus has done for you. I'm asking you to consider him. Don't worry about the externals. Don't worry about being here and what other people may think and coming or not coming to the table. Don't worry about that. Worry about you and Jesus and what he's done for you. Is that the kind of king that you would like to be in his kingdom of? Is he the kind of king that you would follow? Is he the kind of person that you would admit to, maybe for the first time in your life, that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you have nothing to offer, that there's nothing in you that would make you any better off before God than any other person? And if so, you come to him, and by simple faith you accept him. There are no mechanics to it. There are no instructions to it. You just show up before Jesus. You look at the cross, and you know who you are, and you know what you need, and you accept the gift freely. But you come with empty hands so you could receive God's favor in Christ. So come to Him, poor and needy, sick and sore, empty and broken, come to Him. He will fill you with His grace and bless you. If you are a believer, I invite you to come and take communion with us. You don't have to be a member of our church. You just have to be a member of His kingdom. You need to be part of His family. Anybody who is accepted by Christ is accepted by us, His church. And so I encourage you to come and to take communion with us. We're all going to come forward. We're going to take it up front, or you are welcome to take it back to your seats. If you're unable to come forward, an elder will bring communion to you. If you're new here especially and you can't, unable to come forward, please raise your hand uh, high so we can see you, so we can make sure that we can bring communion to you. If you're out in the balconies, there are tables set up for you there. You don't have to come down. You just go where you are and accept. You can take communion there as well. Let us pray together. As I pray, as I'm done praying, we will sing and we will come together and meet Jesus at his table. Father, we praise you that you, in your word, clearly tell us what it means to receive your favor. And it's not dependent on the materialistic gifts or favorable circumstances. It's dependent on your son's work on the cross. Each one of us can be blessed by you in a deep and rich way experience your full favor forever because of what Jesus has done. We can come and receive it. For some of us, again, being reminded of what you've done. Rooting ourselves again in the work of the cross and looking to our King again. 
But for some of us, this is the first time when we have been confronted with our own emptiness and poverty. And so, Lord, I pray that this will not be a point of, of hardship for us, point of guilt or shame, but rather that this would be turned as a way for us to connect with you and be filled with your grace. Lord, I pray that nobody walk away from here today discouraged, but rather resting in your favor through Christ. Well, I pray for us as a church that we would not fall back on the superficial ways of defining what it means to be blessed by you, but that all of us would root ourselves deeper and deeper into your favor through Christ. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us understand our own poverty of spirit, that he would help us also understand the riches that we have in Christ. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us do it together. Let us have a serious approach to this. We come as beggars.